So, all right, we're marching through the Gospel of John, and we're in the 15th chapter. Jesus is walking with his disciples. He's been preparing them for his imminent departure. Uh, He's just hours away from the cross. And now he has begun to in earnest prepare his disciples for what they can expect when he's gone. And uh, he basically says, hey, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. He said, last week I have chosen you out of the world and consequently the world's going to hate you. It's a pretty sober message, conflict, opposition, persecution. These things are inevitable for those who are called by the name of Jesus, those who are following him. Now, it feels like bad news, but that's not all that Jesus said. We just have to stop there. But he keeps on talking and gives us some good news, some hopeful news uh, for our Lord's church. So we're going to read John fifteen twenty-two through John 16, verse 4. Earl Spurgeon and Susan Walker, who spent many of their married uh, years as colonial members, went away for some time. They're back, and uh, they are here to share the scripture with us today. Earl and Susan, take it away. Good morning, Colonial. My name is Susan Walker. And I'm Earl Spurgeon. We've been attending Colonial for a little over a year now. Uh, We attended this church actually about 27 years ago, and we've had an opportunity to come back and have really enjoyed the in-person service and the online service. Our scripture this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, verse 22, through chapter 16, verse 4. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering services to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Okay. So my message today is entitled The Helper, and it will fall under three subheadings. Number one, the sin of unbelief. Number two, the helper. And number three, the call to witness and endure. First, the sin of unbelief. Now, I know that's a provocative subtitle, but let's just pay really close attention to what Jesus said. You know, last week, Jesus acknowledged that there's inevitably going to be a tension between the only two groups of people who will ever exist from that point on, according to Jesus. There's really two groups of people uh, that he's going to divide the whole world into. There is followers of Jesus and the world. Followers of Jesus and the world. According to Jesus, there's no other categories that people can fall into. I know that seems really difficult concept for us to grasp in our pluralistic culture, but if you paid attention to what he said, that's what he said. There's followers of Jesus, there's the world. The world is hostile to God and to those whom Jesus called out of the world. 
The world will hate the disciples because the world hates the name of Jesus. Why? Jesus makes it clear in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Now on a first reading of that verse, we might conclude that the world is hostile to Jesus and his church out of some degree of innocent ignorance, right? I mean, after all, people cannot be held accountable for what they do not know. This is a common objection that we have with kind of the the black and white, two groups of people in the world perspective that Jesus teaches. I mean, how can we hold people accountable for things they don't really know? They're just ignorant. How could they be held accountable for that? We're inclined to say, listen, if people don't know the Father, maybe it's just understandable that they're hateful towards Jesus and the church. Maybe we should give people a pass for acting out of ignorance. But then listen to what Jesus states next, beginning in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they should not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. These words of Jesus are logical and consistent with everything that he has been teaching us in John's gospel and the other gospel accounts. As Jesus said earlier in John fourteen seven and verse 9, If you had known me you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He who has seen me has seen the Father. You see, according to Jesus, there's no such thing as innocent ignorance anymore for these who have been exposed to his words and his works. Jesus makes it perfectly clear. If you've heard my words, you've heard from God, the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've witnessed the works that I've done unprecedented and unmatched works that only God could do, then you're without excuse. Unbelief is no longer innocent ignorance. It is sinful rebellion. By the way, don't be confused when Jesus states, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. As we all know, the whole reason that Jesus came is because the whole world is guilty of sin. Sin is precisely why we all need a Savior. We need Jesus the Messiah in the first place. Jesus is not suggesting that prior to his coming into the world, that the world was not guilty of any sin. He's saying that prior to Jesus, some expressions of unbelief may have been attributed to ignorance, misinformation, or confusion about who God truly is. But once the incarnate Son of God enters onto the stage of history, once his word has been proclaimed and his definitive actions have been accomplished, there is no excuse for the world's unbelief. From that moment on, the rejection of Jesus is exactly equal to hating God. And hating God is a sin. It's a very serious sin indeed. Okay. <laughs> now, if you're an unbeliever, and I'm glad you're with us today, I know already you're like, what? Listen, many of you, I suspect, are feeling offended by what Jesus just said, and by virtue of that, what I said. In fact, I suspect many unbelieving souls, my brother's an unbeliever, and I know exactly what he would respond. He would say, I don't hate anyone. I don't hate Jesus, I don't hate God, I don't have any hatred in my heart towards the church. I simply don't believe any of it. But that doesn't mean I'm antagonistic or hateful towards anyone. I have no doubt that if you're an unbeliever, many unbelievers feel this way. And I believe that is a very legitimate and understandable response 
to what Jesus just said. But to my unbelieving listeners, I would ask you to consider two observations. Number one, even the most determined atheists must credit Jesus with making a claim that either marks him as a lunatic or the very son of God he claims to be. I mean, really, those are like your only two options, right? I mean, no mere mortal, no mere mortal would ever think to say, my words and my actions so perfectly reveal who God is that the world is damned and without excuse if they do not believe in me. (laughs) But that is exactly what Jesus just said. Now, as offensive or as arrogant as that claim may strike you, It is one that deserves our undivided attention. Why? Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then indeed we would be without excuse, right? I mean, if Jesus entered into the world as God incarnate, if his words are actually the words of God, if his love for sinners so graphically displayed on the Roman cross reveals God's suffering, self-sacrificing love for those who don't deserve his love, well, then we actually know who God is. And our rejection of him would be something more damning than blissfully ignorant or innocent in our agnosticism. And that leads me to my second observation. It is one thing to say you don't believe in something and you count that as an amoral, objective point of view that holds no malice or hatred. For example... I might say that I do not believe in utilitarianism, right? In other words, I do not believe that the ends justify the means. To reject a philosophical perspective is not an act of hate, nor should we ever accuse people of hating us because they simply disagree with us, right? I mean, let me say that again. Just because people disagree with us does not mean that they hate us, amen? Now, we must pay particular attention, though, to what Jesus said and did in to understand the severity of our rejection because he counts our rejection as personal not philosophical this is hugely important you see jesus came to the world personally he told us the truth about the way things are within the context of relationships he revealed the truth in who he was and what he said and what he did in real time with real people. And then he laid down his perfect life on a real cross to atone for our wickedness so that we might be rescued from ourselves and be reconciled to God. See, so to spurn the innocent blood of the God-man shed for me, to reject the love of God who gave up his son when I was yet his enemy, to dismiss the extravagant investment God made through Jesus on my behalf, as though it is no more important than a philosophical quibble. That rejection carries with it something deeply personal, and and to some degree, hateful. It, It is to deny that God exists, God cares, that God speaks, that God acts, that God loves, in light of undeniable evidence to the contrary. This is certainly the argument that Jesus is making, and it is a reasonable argument from God's perspective. I mean, in addition to the beauty and majesty of his creation, 
in addition to God's very image that is reflected in every human being. That's what makes us so unique. I mean, in addition to God's countless blessings and provision, in addition to God's specific revelation of law given through Israel and recorded in the Old Testament, a law that is written on the heart of every human being. In addition to all of that, God sent his only son to take on flesh and dwell among us, to teach us, to heal us, to demonstrate God's power. And then the father gave up his son as a sacrificial lamb to once and for all atone for our rebellion against God. Now, just let me ask you a question. Should that not be enough? I mean, you understand God's perspective on this, right? Should that not be enough? Assuming God is there and God loves us, what more should God have to do to get our attention, to communicate his love? I mean, what, what more does God have to do to demonstrate that unconditional self-sacrificing love for his creation, that, that kind of unconditional love that every human soul longs for? So here's what Jesus is saying, is that God rests his case in his son. To reject the Son is not philosophical, it is personal. It is to hate the Father. Unbelief is now a sin, and is a very serious sin indeed. So I would plead with you, if you're an unbeliever, crack open the Bible and read the four Gospels for yourself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then give careful consideration to what Jesus said and what he did. And, and then make an informed decision. Don't let someone else do your thinking for you. Read the Gospels and then force yourself to answer this question. Are these the words of a lunatic or are these the words of the Lord? And make your decision. In the end, we will all stand before God and will either be of the world or we will be counted amongst those whom Jesus rescued out of the world. We will be those who love Jesus and love the Father or we will be those who hate Jesus and hate the Father. This is exactly the picture that Jesus has created, and it's consistent throughout his teaching, throughout the teachings of the New Testament. Now, Jesus makes it clear that the world will be hateful towards the disciples who will be left to carry on the ministry of Jesus. In fact, towards the end of our text, Jesus states, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And Jesus is specifically talking to the 11 disciples here. And he's speaking specifically about the persecution that will come from the Jewish community, particularly there in Jerusalem. Sadly, the Jewish rejection of their own Messiah was predicted long ago, Jesus states in verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me. Without a cause. Jesus is quoting one of two passages from the psalm. Psalm 69.4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. Or Jesus could be quoting uh, Psalm 35.19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. In either case, Jesus would be quoting King David who so often serves as the messianic prototype, the king who is sadly rejected and resisted by his own people. There's, there's definitely a, a sense of sadness and lament in our Lord's voice as he grieves the rejection of the very people he came to save. 
And he now warns his disciples that the Jewish persecution will be fierce, violent, and even deadly. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Now, notice that the unbelieving world, the world in this instance, does not represent the pagans or the atheists. These Jewish persecutors of Jesus are the worst kind. They are religious persecutors. These enemies of Jesus will kill the church and all the time believe that they are serving God as they do so. Let me comment on that for this moment, then we'll move on to my second subheading. You know, when we, when we read this, we feel justified in condemning the, the brutal persecution against the Christians by the early Jewish community. And, and even the horrible persecution against Christians by Rome and then, you know, much later, radical Muslims and, and even communist regimes, as we talked about last week. But we must also point the finger in the mirror and condemn every instance in history when Christians took on the role of religious persecutors. In fact, if you're an unbeliever here today, I'm sure you're finally given a good hearty amen. This is actually a cause of many people's unbelief or rejection of Christianity. Because we don't own when the church has got this horribly wrong and it's been more than once. You know, as I was preparing for this message, uh, several of the books that I was reading, I mean, people lamented this. They lamented the horrible atrocities committed by the church against Jews, Muslims, Hindus, not to mention those deemed to be heretics. Uh, I mean, this is, it's a really big deal. It's, it's part of our history. We can't deny it. You know, I mean, it, you know, a heretic, at one point, it was just you're a Protestant, or a heretic was you're a Catholic. I mean, we've done horrible things to each other, not to mention unbelievers. Some of the greatest theological fathers of our faith were guilty of falling into the role of religious persecutors, including Martin Luther and, and even on one instance, John Calvin. I touched on this last week, but let me say it again. There's no place in the kingdom of God for religious persecutors. None. Followers of Jesus are to endure persecution, not ever to participate in persecution. And that sounds easy enough when I say it. But you know, when the fires of opposition burn hot and we're hurt and we're offended, taking on the role of persecutor obviously comes easily enough given how often the church has fallen into that behavior throughout history. When we resort to violence and persecution against those who oppose us, we have literally rejected our Lord and taken on the ways and thinking of the world. It's one of the things Jesus harped on the most. We just we are not allowed to fight, to hate, to behave in that way. In fact, I think it's fair to say that many who claim to be Christian and persecuted others in Jesus' name were never actually his disciples. They were people of the world under a different name, as McLaren observed last week. So colonial and those of you who are part of our Lord's church, let it never be said of us that we took on the role of religious persecutors. If we are going to fight the good fight, we must use the weapons that our Lord provides and we must engage in the battle as he taught us. And that leads me to my second subheading, the helper. So Jesus has clearly called his disciples to carry on his mission as sheep amongst wolves. In Romans 8.36, Paul laments, For it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I mean, 
Sometimes that's how it feels and it has felt throughout history being a follower of Jesus. And it is admittedly discouraging um, when those times happen. It's, it's kind of a daunting picture of life as a Jesus follower. If not, for what Jesus says next in verse 25 and following, he says, but when the helper comes, sorry, verse 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Did you hear it, church? Jesus did not leave us to fend for ourselves. Jesus did not abandon his own to be defenseless sheep who are senselessly slaughtered. Quite to the contrary. Jesus will send the helper to all who believe. The helper is a person. He is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth who comes from the side of the Father. We're going to spend more time in the next week or two unpacking the work of the Holy Spirit. But for now, let us acknowledge a few things this morning that we can learn from the text. First, note that we will never be alone in our efforts to follow Jesus. In the face of certain opposition and persecution, the believer has only to call upon heaven's champion, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fights for the Lord's church. Uh, This is important. I mean, really, it's a theme that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was back in the Old Testament. Uh, Let me show you. Remember 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat, uh, he's, they're totally surrounded, they're totally outnumbered by opposing army. They call upon the Lord in their distress. Here's what we read. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel and he said, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed by this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and the Lord will be with you. That's the picture. Jesus has not abandoned his disciples. His death and resurrection will not lead to this huge, long vacancy. The Holy Spirit is coming. And there's a lot to be said about that. We'll get to it more. But this is the kind of promise that we have as his disciples. The same Spirit of God who smote the enemies of Israel is he who will fight the battles of our Lord's church. And what is his weapon? What is the weapon of the Holy Spirit? The truth. McLaren writes, The truth is his instrument. That is to say, the Spirit of God sent by Jesus Christ is the strengthener, the encourager, the comforter, the fighter for us and with us because he wields that great body of truth, the perfect revelation of God and man and duty and salvation, which is embodied in the incarnation and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. The truth is his weapon and it is by it that he makes us strong. That's a powerful quote and I think it's so absolutely true. Let me tell you something. And you know this is true. I mean, no matter how much physical suffering you might have to endure, At the hand of another, nothing compares to the carnage of losing your hope. You know, we've seen this with testimonies of people throughout the ages who suffered, you know, as prisoners of war, just the worst kind of scenarios you can imagine. Hope is what keeps us going. Our hope is attached to what we believe in the deepest parts of our soul. And should our faith be shaken, should this confidence in what we believe to be true in our soul, then our hope is in jeopardy. And herein lies the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus will say in our text for next week, he will guide you into all the truth. 
Because the spirit of truth is in us, we can resist the lies of our enemy. Because the spirit of truth is within us, we can resist the lies of our culture or our adversaries. We can resist reciprocating retaliation. We, we can endure because our hope is secure. Why? Because it's rooted to the truth. How do we know the truth? The helper comes and brings conviction of everything that is true. The truth will help us prevail. Our hope will be steadfast because Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to comfort and defend those who belong to him. Well, I tell you what, I wouldn't last a week in my job if I didn't have the Holy Spirit convicting me of the truth. That's what keeps me going. That helps me to endure persecution, hardships, opposition, because I know that it's true. My hope is attached to that truth, no matter what the circumstances of my life. I hope that you have that confidence as well. Now, now also that the helper comes as a spirit of truth to bear witness about Jesus. This is part of his function. This is really huge. You know, in the end, no one actually comes to believe the gospel apart from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I know this to be true from three decades of preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, without exception, the work of convicting a human soul from one who is far from God to one who loves Jesus is something that no human hand can accomplish. If the Holy Spirit does not work within the heart of an unbeliever, no amount of preaching, argument, apologetic, or persuasion will amount to anything at all. In fact, all of our best efforts apart from the Holy Spirit will often lead people to become even more resistant. (laughs) The Holy Spirit ultimately bears witness to the truth about who Jesus is. But notice that the Holy Spirit's power most regularly works through believers to accomplish his purposes. Jesus states in verse 27, And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now again, Jesus is clearly speaking to the 11, uh, for they have been those who have walked with Jesus in person for three years. They will bear witness by virtue of what they've seen and what they've heard. By the way, this is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence for the truth of the Gospels. These are eyewitness accounts. These are people who said, We saw, we heard, we touched with our hands. Eyewitnesses. Nothing is as compelling as the testimony of an eyewitness. However, let us not assume that this text does not apply to our Lord's Church in the 21st century. It most certainly does. I mean, we are yet those who are called and set apart to be our Lord's witnesses. We're not an add-on to the Holy Spirit. We are the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus. Even as we testify to what we have seen and what we've heard now as paul says i mean god has entrusted this witness and even the work of the holy spirit into what he calls jars of clay you know i mean we're imperfect vessels there's no question about it but he did that on purpose so that that people see christ but they wouldn't be confused that we're christ they would see the perfection and beauty of the gospel but they wouldn't be confused that that's us right so he uses jars of clay, broken people like us, to bear witness to who, the, you know, who Jesus is through the power of the Holy Spirit so that God gets the glory. And um, it's for this reason that we should never underestimate the power of prayer, right? It's just the jars of clay. If we pray and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will bear witness to Christ through us, even though we're just jars of clay. And that is going to invoke 
the spirit of others. The Holy Spirit will bring about transformation uh, in us and through us and bear witness to the world. And that's really, that's our testimony. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But apart from the Holy Spirit of Christ in us, listen, we can do nothing. So this is good news. It's good news. He's sending the helper. That leads me to my third and final subheading, the call to witness and endure. Jesus concludes our passage. Let me just read the last couple of verses all together now. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Oh, this is really important. You know, really, I mean, when you think about this thought unit, there's two primary takeaways, two action items. Number one, to bear witness. And number two, to endure. Very common throughout the New Testament. First, Jesus specifically charged his followers to bear witness, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we bear witness. We are not charged to convince, coerce, command, or control, or even compel people into the faith. We're called to bear witness through the power of the Holy Spirit. That means that we pray up and then we speak the truth about Jesus from a personal, experiential perspective. We give our testimony. We point to the peace that we have found in Jesus. We point to our liberation from addiction in his name. We point to the change of heart that we experience through Jesus when the Father took residence within us through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We bear witness to how the scriptures have proven to be true in our lives and our experiences. And we bear witness to our own failures in our Lord's infinite grace, a grace so deep and so rich that we now understand ourselves, our very identity as children of God. We bear witness that whatever good we've done, whatever gifts we've shared, whatever success we've attained, all of that is for the glory of God. Because it's the whole purpose that we have existence, is to make God known, to, to give him the glory. We bear witness. That is the work of every believer. It is not just with our words, it's also with our actions. Our lives, everything about us should be a witness, should bear witness to who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. Now, some of us have been called to teach, some to lead, some to pastor, still others to prophesy. But all believers, without exception, have been called to bear witness. To do otherwise would be unthinkably selfish, if you think about it, right? The world needs to know They need to hear our story. We pray up through the power of the Holy Spirit. We bear witness. Now, the second mandate from Jesus in our text is to endure. He states, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus knows his disciples will undergo horrible persecution in the days and weeks to come. To be put out of the synagogue in the first century, oh, it was... It was almost as bad as being martyred in some ways. It was probably worse. (laughs) A Jew who was expelled from the synagogue was cut off in every conceivable way. And I've touched on this in previous messages. I mean, not only were they and their families 
completely cut off socially and religiously, but they would have also been blackballed from the marketplace. So it would have had horrible financial repercussions as well. And then, you know, as believers, they would have been cut off from the word of God. Think about that. I mean, the scriptures were in these scrolls, and there weren't many of them, and they were within the copies of the scrolls, or within the possession of the rabbis, within the synagogue, within the temple. So if you were cast out from the synagogue and from the temple, you were also cast out from the word of God. It was devastating reality, and, and a certain reality, for those who pledged their lives to follow Jesus in the first century. Not to mention just people that were going to get killed. They were going to be executed by those who thought they were honoring God by taking lives. We talked about that. It's, it's pretty horrible. Jesus knew this was coming. And so he calls his disciples to persevere, to endure, to not fall away. Now, this call to endure is a common theme throughout New Testament. Let me just read you a few scriptures. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Of course, Jesus in Matthew 24, 9 through 14, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Oh, that you could spend a lot of time just unpacking what Jesus just said right there. And I know some of us were like, oh, feels like the end's coming pretty quick. <laughs> there is a strong message that comes from Jesus all throughout the New Testament, all the way through the end in the book of Revelation, and it is endure. Don't give up. Hang in there. Trust him. Trust the helper. Persevere. Our faith will be tested over and over again while we live in this age. But we have to believe and know that the testing of our faith is building character whenever we have the grace to stand firm. And Jesus will provide all the grace that we need for today. You know, we'd all like to have this large deposit of grace in the bank that we could just count on in advance and would just give us a buffer against all the pain and struggles and doubts of the world. We don't like to ever come to the end of ourselves and just be dangling there at the end of our rope, right? But it doesn't typically work that way, does it? It does not. I, even the most tenured believers feel hard-pressed, discouraged, and pushed to the very limits of our faith on a regular basis. I say that because... I relate with that very well. I mean, I won't lie to you. I have been pressed to that limit on several occasions in the past year. Even after decades of being in the ministry, I regularly find myself pushed to the point of wondering how I will stand another day. But then God gives me grace for another day. 
As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 10, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I mean, you hear what he's saying, right? Our suffering, our persecution, the opposition we face, the dark night of the soul, you know, hanging there by the end of the rope... That's the death of Christ. It's just the reality of, of not being of the world and having to experience a lot of the things that Jesus experienced. But it's the means by which we're going to bear witness to the life of Christ in us. I mean, our Lord is faithful and he's going to provide us the grace that we need on any given day when we call upon his name. And this testing and opposition will ultimately grow our faith and... Our testimony. In fact, our testimony begins where our natural strength ends. You know that, right? right? Nobody is going to be all that interested in a story of how strong you were by your own strength. Uh, you know, like how you handled that because you're so smart. That's not a compelling testimony. Our, our testimony is where our strength ends. It's in that place of quiet desperation when we cry out to God and God meets us through the grace of His Son Jesus and empowers us through His Holy Spirit to endure, to prevail, to overcome. That's the testimony. Your testimony begins where your strength ends. Your testimony actually begins at the end of your rope. And we just point to the faithfulness of God through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit because we call upon the name of Jesus. He saves us, not just once, but daily, over and over again. And that's part of our testimony, right? And listen, when you've had the grace to endure, when God has given you just what you needed to overcome, to prevail, and you start to see the richness of your character, your steadfastness, your hope is secured deeper, with that anchor of the truth through the Holy Spirit. I mean, then it's incumbent upon you and upon me to share that story, to give glory to God, to, to give our testimony. Uh, so I just want to close with this encouragement. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Bear witness and endure. Don't fall away. Don't lose your hope. Call upon the name of Jesus, look to the helper, and he will supply you with the grace that you need for today and great hope for tomorrow. And remember, the battle is the Lord's. He will fight for you. That's why he sent the helper. So do not worry and do not dismay. Stand firm and see what the Lord will do. Amen? Will you pray with me? Lord, as we close this time, I'm just so grateful for your word, for your promise, for the helper. We are not alone in our faith. You have sent the Holy Spirit to empower us, to teach us, to convict us of the truth, that our hope would be steadfast, even when our bodies suffer or we struggle with conflict at home, in our relationships, at work. Uh, Lord, there's so many challenges in the world, and so much of it really is kind of scary. We just don't know what to make of it, and yet you've called us to endure. 
to trust you, to overcome, to persevere. And so, Lord, today, particularly for those who are struggling, they're just at the end of the rope. We pray for your grace, that you would supply the grace that we need for today. We call upon the name of Jesus. We ask for the power of your spirit to move in our lives, to move in our circumstances, to give us grace for today, that we might endure, that we would not fall away or give up. And then, Lord, we pray for another dose of grace tomorrow, that our hope would remain And that as we get from day to day, that we would see and learn and grow. That our character would be shaped to those who can endure. Who can handle hard assignments. Who who have a story to tell of your goodness. And then Lord, I pray that you would open the door, open the opportunity for us to just share our testimony. To share our story with the unbelieving world. That we would bear witness through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is our savior, that he saved us, that he changed us, that he has blessed us, and that we actually experience, even in the midst of the worst storm, the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. I pray this for your church, and I pray this and desire this for all the unbelievers, that they too would come to know the love, the deep, deep love of Jesus for us all, that you demonstrated by sending him to atone for us. Lord, on behalf of even one unbeliever today who's just ready to just take a knee, I just pray, show me. Show me, Lord, your glory. Help me to understand it. Reveal yourself to me in the scriptures that I might too become a follower of Christ and I might be forgiven and reconciled to God. I don't want to hate God. I don't want to hate Jesus. I just, I need help to understand. I pray, Lord, that you would draw this currently unbelieving soul deep into the gospels that they would read carefully and thoughtfully with an open heart the four gospels and then make a decision I I can't believe anybody could read the four gospels and come to the thought that these are the words of a lunatic you are the Lord All all of history revolves around your life and what you said and what you did on that cross So, Lord, I pray for those who are unbelievers today that they would just be motivated, convicted to go read the gospel and to yield to your call upon their life, that they too would bear witness to the life-transforming work of Jesus Christ. To your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.